Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome back to Behind the Knife. This is Patrick Georgioff and Dr. Shanaz Hussain, BTK Education Fellow. And today, we are joined by Adjunct Professor of Surgery at the University of Pennsylvania and President and CEO of the American Board of Surgery, Dr. Joe Beisky. Welcome to Behind the Knife, Dr. Beisky. Thank you. I'm pleased to be here. So today, we're going to be talking about the American Board of Surgery's new family leave policy. And if you haven't already, I would highly encourage you to listen to our last episode, which was released on November 1st, discussing pregnancy and parenthood during surgery training. It's an amazing discussion, and I think truly a must listen for all surgeons. I've actually listened to it multiple times already myself. So, uh, Dr. Beisky, the ABS requires 48 weeks of full-time clinical activity in each of the five years of residency, and that's regardless of the amount of operative experience obtained. Now, the remaining four weeks of the year are considered non-clinical time, can be used for any purposes like vacations, conferences, interviews, et cetera. And before this new policy, residents could take an additional two weeks off during their first three years of residency, an additional two weeks off during their uh, last two years of residency to accommodate medical conditions or pregnancy, et cetera. And they could do so without having to pay back or make up that time at the end of their training. So what changes with, with the new family leave policy? The new family leave policy uh, extends the amount of time you can take off without having to extend your training. So instead of two weeks in the first two, three years or, and two weeks in the last two years, it's now four weeks. The standard four weeks of non-clinical time and then an additional four weeks um, twice during your training to accommodate a major family event, essentially. And so the, the primary difference is, is two additional weeks off. So uh, you could get up to six weeks off and maintain an additional two weeks of non-clinical time uh, during either that first three-year block or that or that last two-year block, correct? That's exactly right. And it, it adds on to the previous leave policies that include um, being able to average. You know, so if you took three weeks off your first year, you can you know add that week onto your leave. Um, if you if you um, want to extend some of the leave into, say, a research year, you know, so it can be uh, added on to for additional time. But I do really strongly recommend that people not use all of their leave in one chunk um, for one of these family events, but save some of it for uh, time off later on in the year or, or as needed uh, for unexpected events over the course of time. Sure. And, and this is called the family leave policy. What's included in that in terms of, you know, medical emergencies, pregnancy, et cetera? So that is actually the other change, because prior to that, it was a medical leave policy, and it really was restricted to the birthing parent. Um, and it also applied to, you know, a car accident, an illness, uh, but it was specific to the individual. So uh, uh, the non-birthing parent couldn't take leave, uh, nor could you take leave if you were, say, taking care of your own parent um, or your spouse or significant other uh, or any other relationship. So Two years ago, when we changed the policy, we changed it to a family leave policy, not exactly the same as FMLA, which is a federal government policy, but much more expansive. So basically a caregiver, a caregiver role. So it applies to non-birthing parents, other family members, major life events. So this additional two weeks is the same. It applies to anybody who's involved in this major life event. Right. And then what about the your chief year? There's a lot of restrictions or specific instruction regarding that chief year. How does How does this impact that? 
So that's a really good question. And that is part of what made us realize that we hadn't quite hit the mark when we changed the policy two years ago, because the chief year is a critical year. We've we've always felt that it had to be held sort of sacrosanct. It's different than other years. You can't do the chief year in isolation, meaning you can't just you can't change institutions after your fourth year and just do a chief year because so much about it is about being trusted to take care of patients and have independent judgment, et cetera. We think it's a really significant year. So, so you know that you have to do 11 months of chief rotations in order to, um, to be eligible to sit for your exams. So you can do some chief rotations in your fourth year um, to accommodate not doing chief rotations in your fifth year. That was really geared at the flexibility and training policy. So if you wanted to do a, say you wanted to go into plastic surgery, you want to do a plastic surgery rotation, but it's not a chief rotation because you're not skilled in plastic surgery. We wanted people to have the flexibility to do that. So we started allowing people to do chief rotations in the fourth year. If the if that rotation meant you were the senior most person on the service, you were responsible for the care of the patients pre-op, you know, intra-op and post-op. And it was basically a chief type experience. So we didn't really anticipate that people might uh, need leave during their chief year without the opportunity to plan ahead at all. I don't know. I can't explain why we didn't anticipate it. It's obvious in retrospect, but we didn't. Uh, so the requirement that you have 11 months of a chief rotation, we were like, well, they can just do, you know, they can do chief rotations in their fourth year. Most programs have that now, especially because of the flexibility and training requirement. The ones that don't they really do have chief type rotations in their fourth year. They just haven't registered them properly with the RRC. The RRC does have to approve those. So we started to realize that the requirement that if you, you know, got pregnant in July and you were going to have a baby in you know, May, um, uh, you wouldn't have had a chance to do to, you know, proactively do a chief rotation the fourth year. So that we started to realize that we had a problem with that requirement, but we still felt pretty strongly that those 11 months were key. Um, so to your, to your point, you know, how, what, what's the story with the chief year? We're strongly encouraging programs right now to register all, all fourth year rotations that could be chief rotations as chief rotations with the RC. And in this interim period, um, you know, we, we're not, we're not trying to catch anybody. So if people are in that situation, then, um, then we're just asking them to, to, to have the program director and program administrator tell us about the fourth year rotations that could be used in its stead. So that'll be the stopgap measure. Um, but hopefully in the near term, programs will start to register those fourth year rotations that are eligible as chief rotations because we um, still want people to do 11 months of chief rotations. Yeah, that, that's interesting. And I think uh, in retrospect for me, portion of that fourth year that would apply to that. Yes. Surgical training overlaps with childbearing years, posing significant challenges for female residents who wish to have children, as we mentioned, especially like during the chief year. Um, studies show an increased risk of pregnancy-related complications, a negative impact on pregnant residents' evaluations, as well as a much greater time commitment to parenting obligations for women compared to their male counterparts. A study of 347 female surgeons with 452 pregnancies was published in JAMA in 2018 by Wrangell and Group, and it showed that 86% of women worked in an unmodified schedule until birth, 35% of women reported residency program maternity leave policies, 58% stopped breastfeeding earlier than they wanted to, and only 18% had institutional support for their childcare. Of these Almost 40% strongly considered leaving surgical residency. Those are really brutal numbers, but these are aspects that are seen every day around the country in residency programs. Did you use this information at all, or was this information impactful on the ABS's decision to introduce a new family leave policy? And do you think these new changes are enough to maybe change some of these numbers? So the leave policy, I, the, that sort of information 
we used when we started uh, implementing extended leave policies, because I don't think six weeks is enough. I think eight weeks is pushing it by the time you start including any need for um, you know, bed rest or, or, or shortened activities prior to having a baby. Now we're talking about people who are actually having a baby. Um, uh, and so we, several years ago, implemented extended leave options that residents could take. In doing that, one of the critical features was that 85% of our trainees start fellowships on July 1st, uh, or what used to be July 1st. So we spent probably three years getting fellowships to move their start date date much later in July so that that obstacle was removed. That's actually why we moved the qualifying exam from August, its traditional position in August, to July to help drive that along. So our solution was to allow a lot more time um, without cutting cutting back on the amount of time spent actually training. So we have, you can extend for a month um, and still take the qualifying exam. You can actually extend for two months to the end of August um, that, of course, does start to be a problem with the fellowship. And then we have what's called the five and six policy, which allows people to take up to 12 months off. They have to make it up. They have to extend their training. Uh, so that was really driven by the understanding that it's just not enough time, especially in a high stress, physically demanding environment to have six weeks off. I'd say the newer modifications, they're tweaks around the edges. I think people need um, more time off than than is allowed in, in any of these policies. So what's next then and from the ABS, uh, if in fact you do believe that that more is needed, how do you see that playing out over time? Is this a matter of starting with policy and then seeing culture change that follows and then you grow on these on these initial changes or what, what's next? I think that there are two arms to it uh, that I can think of anyway. I think the, the one that I was just talking about, extending training, that is very parallel to academic pathways. So when you look for a promotion, you go from assistant professor to associate professor. If you have a kid or a major life event, you get an extension by a year. So I think that that's underutilized. I know it's horrifying to look at that. And I know it has financial repercussions and training repercussions. And some people have been accepted into fellowship. Um, but when possible, I think people should take more time off. They, they need more time off. Uh, and looking back from 10 years later, they'll be glad that they took it. So that's one arm is a greater sort of uh, professional uh, acceptance of the idea that more time is better and that taking a, taking a few months off or a year off or intermittent months off is very valuable. Uh, the other is that we're switching to competency-based um, training away from a purely time-based and case log training. I have zero interest in counting the number of weeks that people are training. I don't think that that's productive. It's not what I signed up for. Uh, I am hoping to eliminate that. What I would like to say when someone says, how much time can I uh, take off and still graduate on time is to say, have you accomplished the competencies that uh, that we expect of a surgeon, and then let the program and the local rules decide what, what training is. And we're on track to do that. The entering class of 2023 is going to be measured on competency-based advancement, as the Canadians are doing now. So that's the uh, the short answer, but it's really a long answer, right? Because the 2023 class won't graduate till 2028. We have to do something in between, which is where we landed with allowing extra time off. That competency-based discussion is an, an entirely uh, additional discussion that maybe we may have to have you right back on and have another <laughs> uh, talk about that because that, um, there are a lot of challenges, um, I'm sure, with with the competency-based approach. But it makes also makes sense and a lot of for a lot of reasons you mentioned. Uh, now, the the family leave policy will be available to trainees quote as their programs allow or or as allowed by their programs. So what challenges to implementing this policy uh, exist at the 
programmatic level. And so what are some of the, the primary factors that, that stop programs from being able to easily roll this out? So I was on the EBMS task force that looked at parental leave across all specialties. And I also attended as part of that task force, the consortium meeting, I think it was called, of the ABMS and the ACGME. And that was, it was astonishing how many things come into play. There's local HR at a given hospital. There's city rules wherever that hospital is located, state regulations. Um, some hospitals are unionized. Um, you know, there's federal regulations and then there's different board expectations that vary across different specialties. And then there's program rules. So it was quite startling how many players there were in this arena. So we don't have the power to tell a hospital that you have to pay someone for parental leave. We just have no authority over, over any given hospital. The ACGME has some authority. They can say, you can't have a program. We won't accredit a program at your institution unless you have these things in place. But the board can only make rules about individuals. And so uh, the ACGME manages programs and the board manages in individuals, which is a sort of little understood if you don't live in my little world of accreditation and certification. Interesting. So how does the ACGME fit into all of this then? Because the ACGME uh, sets and monitors professional education standards. And in the general surgery program requirements set forth by the ACGME, they have an entire section on the learning and working environment that states that, quote, programs must have policies and procedures in place to ensure coverage of patient care for trainees with medical or parental care needs. And these policies must be implemented without fear of negative consequences. So I think that the purpose of that meeting, and I'm not a member of the ACGME, we are sort of sibling organizations. Uh, I think the purpose was to refine those requirements. I think that they are planning to come out with more specific program requirements that will have uh, clearer rules around pay, required amount of leave, um, maintaining benefits, things like that, about, uh, about obstacles to training. I think, I think you know the list, Who's gonna, who is gonna take care of those patients? You know, in, in a specialty where we have so few people, um, you know, if you're in a, in a much, if you're on a primary care specialty, there's more residents to, uh, to help fill in. So if a surgical resident steps out, then you've got to immediately have a gap in coverage. So is it, is it, um, uh, advanced care providers? Is it attendings? Is it other residents? Uh, and I don't know that I know the answer to that. I think that we, our profession medicine writ large has a really unusual interface between work and education. So that is, um, that is a challenge, but I also think it's essential to make rules around it so that people are protected. So is there some kind of recipe for success? Are there programs out there that are doing this well? I think it's important for programs to not work at the outer edge of what's possible. So, you know, low way back in the day when the 80 hour work week came into effect, only surgery really lost its mind. Like, how can we possibly do that? You know, when I was a trainee, we worked an alternate 125 hour week and 140 hour week. And it was inconceivable that that could be reduced to 80. And we thought that all of our partners across the house of medicine were going to be upset too, but it turned out that most other specialties weren't working that many hours. Anyway, the 80 hour work week didn't matter at all. Uh, and then we had a decade of programs who were in trouble because, you know, they're working 85 hours or, you know, 90 hours. That only happens if you are have people scheduled to work 80 hours. So if you have them scheduled to work 70 or 60, then the occasion when you might need them to work more, you have some flexibility. So staffing differently. So you're not already at the outer edge of what's feasible. So when you ask people to step in or fill in, um, you're not pushing them, you know, 
pushing them to the wall. I think that's part of it. And I think that's why it works better in primary care programs where there are more trainees. They're not already working as hard as they possibly can and you know, struggling to survive already. I think that's part of it is changing the culture. We don't have to do as much as can be humanly done. Sure. So some of that culture change may only really exist when programs stop working at the outer edge, like you said, of what is possible. There's other countries out there with residency training programs like Canada that have a much more progressive family leave policy than, unfortunately, what we've been able to come up with so far. Um, How do you think they're able to account for it to help implement this type of leave policy for their residents? So Canada is an interesting example. Um, They obviously train great surgeons uh, and we, uh, a lot of them are eligible for our exams. We are eligible for their exams as well under most circumstances. They they are two years ahead of us in competency-based education. They've switched across the nation in all specialties by mandate from the Royal College to switch to competency-based advancement. So we're learning from them about implementation. Actually, they're more than two years ahead because they're two years in right now for general surgery. So that'll be a partial solution, not counting days anymore or counting uh, competencies instead. Prior to that, though, they, I'm not sure it's fair to say that they have a more progressive leave policy. They certainly have a different educational system. They have research embedded in their residency. They have electives embedded in their residency. And uh, it is different province by province. Uh, and they have up to six months um, parental leave, but you have to make it up. Um, and so we have you know, uh, up to 12 months actually leave policy that you would have to make up. So I don't know that it's fair to say that it's more progressive. They do have an out where your program director can forgive up to three months of that by special petition, but I don't know how often that's used. So, um, so yes, they can take six months. They have to make it up. You theoretically can take six months under our policy as well. I want to be fair though, and say your hospital and your program have to let you do that. That's our policy. We allow that. But what happens boots on the ground is is local. And I think in Canada, it's a little less local, although provinces do have some independence. And then how do you think this new policy change fits within the future of surgical training in the U.S. as envisioned by the ABS? So I think it's a bridge. Uh, I think it's a bridge. I think it's a couple things. I think it is a declaration of a culture change and recognition that uh, that five years of training is a really long time. And, and these policies affect not just the core five-year training, but also the specialties. So seven years is an even longer time, uh, plus the years of research. And that it is hiding your head in the sand to pretend that major life things aren't going to happen and that people aren't going to have to do something about them. So I think it's an acknowledgement, a step towards normalizing um, everything that happens during um, during those seven to 10 years of your life. And I, I applaud that. And I certainly see that effect um, even uh, even prior to the um, the eight week so that's one thing. I think it's a bridge. I think it's a bridge to competency based education. And I don't want to imply that competency based education is going to shorten training, like you said, a whole other podcast. But I do think it'll make things simpler. Um, you know, when we when we uh, changed our rules because of COVID, we went from requiring 850 cases to requiring 10 percent less. So we're, we sort of make up numbers, and I don't want to make up numbers anymore. I want to measure competencies. If we'd had competencies during COVID, then we could have said they should stay home as much as they need to. They need to still fulfill these competencies. I think a lot of trainees actually will have fulfilled them by four and a half years or so, but not everybody will, but we need a measurable tool. So I see these policies as a stopgap measure that honor the idea that you need more time off. I see the extended training policies as allowing additional flexibility. And I hope we're just normalizing that not just babies, but life happens during residency and, uh, and people need to have the time that they need to deal with it. And so it sounds like 
you're suggesting that with compensate-based training, there will be more flexibility for these big life events. Uh, can you uh, go into a little more detail about compensate-based training? You know, give us a brief overview. I, we've, you've, you and the ABS have talked about it in, in different forums before, uh, but for the purpose of um, filling in this discussion too, what, what are you talking about when it comes to compensate-based training? So during, um, and COVID is really was uh helped the cause because there were all these calls to, and actually not just COVID, but the um, um, the failure of the qualifying exam last year, all of those things, people were like, well, you should just base them on whether you should base certification on whether people are competent or not. We don't actually have measures for that. Um, we have a program director's sense of whether you are or not and the other people who evaluate you, but we don't have a sort of validated standardized measure for that. Those are tools that have got to be built. So competency-based education goes away from saying, we think that people should do 850 cases to saying that, uh, that your trainers, your teachers have decided that you are entrustable, can be trusted to take care of a patient who presents with gallbladder disease from beginning to end. There are multiple steps of evaluation along the way. There are levels of entrustment. There's actually formalized language around that. Uh, and I know it, it all sounds crazy, but we've been working on this since 2015. Uh, when we started, we made a trip to the Netherlands, who are sort of the parents of competency-based education. We've worked with the Canadians, we've working with the pediatricians in this country who are also moving along the competency-based advancement um, path. Uh, so it's been, a, it's been, and we did a two-year pilot actually with 28 programs looking at some of the competencies. So we are, we've laid the groundwork uh, and now we're going to pull the trigger in 2023. Not, it's a hard thing to explain in five minutes. I'm not sure that that was particularly helpful. Sorry. Yeah, no, but it's it's you know I think we've all seen some of the the talk around entrustment and mm-hmm. and that's what we're all getting towards autonomy within residency. Uh, but the who is the onus then on the program and the attending staff that that helped to train that surgeon within that individual program to determine uh, competency. Uh, obviously, there's going to be some objective measures, but there's so many so much of what we do in, in general surgery training um, falls outside when it comes to decision-making and other complex uh, patients. Everyone's, you know, every patient is unique. Every case is unique. Uh, how does all that get wrapped up into objective measures to say, yes, this patient has met those, com- or excuse me, this trainee has met those competencies and they're able to move through. So the, the power of competency-based advancement, at least if you use entrustable professional activities, which is the tool that we're using, is multiple frequent evaluations sort of every day all the time. Instead of that end-of-month evaluation, it's very standardized language. So it's, uh, you know, if we're going to do an inguinal hernia uh, and say you're an intern and you, you know, go off and take a history and physical, come back and tell me the story. And I have actually a rubric that says this person considered a broad differential diagnosis did an effective workup, you know, comprehensive workup and hit all the important parts of the physical exam. Uh, And then we can say they didn't do those things. They are not entrustable today on that patient in my eyes. So then you gather that information multiple times on an individual. The part of the power of entrustable professional activities is it's multiple evaluations. It's not my prejudice about whether I might think you're really smart or not, or you did really well on that particular day when I was also having a good day. So I'm really pleased with you. Uh, it, it sort of, uh, the multiple, the multiple evaluations help load level the opinions and you actually get some nice, some um, nice sort of scattergraphs of residents developing competency and entrustability over the course of time. We all know 
surgical faculty know whether they trust you with something or not. They know what resident they would trust to do a case. They know what resident they trust to evaluate the patient in the cardiac ICU um, versus see a post-op patient in the clinic. We know, we think in that language, I would trust them with that patient. I don't quite trust them. They're not quite ready. They need more supervision. So it's very intuitive and natural to the way we work. Uh, and there are, believe me, there is an entire raft of support tools for the decision-making. Um, and so our biggest challenge is probably going to be faculty education over the next two years. Right. And I can see that. And that's partially because this is a shift away from the classic formative and summative type evaluation and moving more towards answering really a single question about entrustability, correct? It's, it is a shift, but it's, it's, a, it's a short question for every interaction. It's not like, tell us the global. It's like, did they do this one thing right? Yes, no, move on. Um, and of course, there'll be an app for that, you know, a tool that makes it easier. And what we learned from the pilots is actually the faculty thought it was relatively easy to incorporate to their day-to-day. Plus, it gets rid of that end-of-the-month evaluation that's a pain in the neck and perhaps not that accurate for everybody. Sure. So then let's wrap that back in with the uh, resident who needs to take some time off for whatever personal reason. And let's zoom forward 10 years into the future and competency-based training is in full swing. How, how does that, how is that resident then able to be better supported um, in this new environment where competency-based training reigns supreme and they can feel more comfortable or there's more flexibility? What, what, what changes make that possible to say that, um, life events happen and we're here to support you. And it's a a better version of our current system. So in that scenario, the, the resident takes the time that they need, including intermittent time after the fact. And in the end of their training there, they have a portfolio of things that they've been granted competency for. I think that most of us know chief residents who are pretty ready to be done you know, the beginning of their fifth year, or certainly halfway through their fifth year. So the, 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 click, the ticking clock isn't about how many months or how many days you showed up to work. It's only about what you've learned. So does it support someone who takes time off for major family events? I think it, I think it does in that there's no penalty of time. Uh, and there is a a group assessment about their competency that may help with any bias against someone who took time off. But it also allows us to testify to the public that they met the same standards as everyone else. Not that they you know, had to train for less time because they had a kid, but they still met all of the competencies. So we, we don't really expect people to have to extend training because of the competencies. I think some people extend training right now based on whether their program directors think they're competent or not. Probably those same number of people will need to in the future. But for the most part, I think that people will attain those competencies earlier on. Well, that certainly represents a seismic shift in the way surgeons are trained in the United States. And I find it particularly interesting that we ended up here in our conversation on family leave. So I'm eager to see how competency-based training will ultimately impact the culture of surgical training and how it might replace the stopgap type family leave policy we discussed today because there's a great deal more work that we can do uh, to better our surgical community. Yeah, I, I certainly hope so. And I just, you know, having kids in the United States is hard. Uh, it's hard in every single profession. You know, I was pregnant at the same time as my secretary was pregnant. I don't think she had any easier of a time than I did of it. Um, so it's hard. And we, we aim to make it more normalized and straightforward for people to have kids when they want them. Well, again, thank, thank you for joining us on Behind the Knife. And 
in short order, we'll, we're going to have to have you back on and talk about some more of this, this comedy based stuff uh, as, as it begins to roll out. Cause that's fair enough. It is, it is fascinating. So thanks again for joining us. Sure. Bye-bye. Until next time, dominate the day. 